0: Ooh, baby, I like Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. And, of course, do not forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher as well. So first off, a quick apology. SoundCloud is the site which hosts the RSS feed for this podcast, and I was unaware that they were doing maintenance on the site when I initially posted episode number 12. So as such, I quickly found out that the Raw Attitude podcast was displaying in iTunes so that people could see there was a new episode, but due to SoundCloud's ongoing maintenance, people were not actually able to download the podcast for a while. I'm sure that was as frustrating for you as it was for me, but thankfully it didn't last too long, so hopefully SoundCloud can avoid those types of hiccups in the future. But in the meantime, if you haven't yet downloaded or listened to episode 12, you should definitely do so. With that being said, now it's on to episode 13, and it is Tuesday, March 17th, 1998, St. Patty's Day, and we are pre-taped one day in advance from Phoenix, Arizona. So why did they tape Raw at its normal time on Monday night, but then air it one day later? Well, if you did in fact listen to episode number 12, you will know that the reason is because the USA Network wanted to reserve Sunday and Monday night for its two-part miniseries, Moby Dick. Yes, the USA Network spent 20 million dollars, which would be the equivalent of 30 million dollars in 2016, to create their televised version of Herman Melville's classic novel, one of my personal favorites, starring Patrick Stewart, Gregory Peck, and Ted Levine. If the name Ted Levine doesn't sound familiar to you, perhaps you might know him for a rather different role. Now, it places the lotion in the basket. Put the fucking lotion in the basket. Now, I haven't watched the Moby Dick miniseries, but I feel confident stating two things. Number one, the computer effects for that whale had to be complete garbage in 1998, and number two, it was probably still a much better movie than that Ron Howard flop In the Heart of the Sea that came out last year and starred the less dreamy Hemsworth Brother. But anyway, there's your backstory, and now you know why we're getting a special episode of of Tuesday Night Raw. I wonder how Vince McMahon felt about this. Less than two weeks from WrestleMania and one of the episodes they planned on broadcasting live gets pushed back a day, thereby making all the results available on the internet 24 hours in advance, all because the USA Network wanted to make a whale movie starring Captain Picard and Buffalo Bill. No wonder they end up moving the show over to TNN two and a half years from now. Spoiler! So let's queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Funny enough, as the cameraman in the ring was scanning the crowd, he accidentally dropped his camera to the canvas, so we're clearly off to a good start. A couple quality signs tonight, including Luna smells like tuna, The Rock tried to sell me crack in the parking lot, and the very succinct drop out drink beer. Good advice. Also, it isn't actually a sign, but there is a fan in the front row wearing a shirt which simply says, Shut up, bitch! Keeping it classy. I posted a picture of that fan as well as a picture of the Rock's crack dealer sign on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, so you can check those out if you so choose. We begin the show with Kevin Kelly in the ring, ready to interview Ken Shamrock, who heads down the ramp. Kelly shows footage from last week where the Nation of Domination ganged up on him, but then the Rock shooed them away so he could beat up Shamrock by himself, which of course resulted in Shamrock putting Rocky in an ankle lock. Kelly asks Shamrock if he'll be able to control his temper when he meets The Rock at WrestleMania in 12 days. Shamrock says Kelly does not have to worry about his temper, but The Rock certainly does, and he will be the new Intercontinental Champion after that match. Not only that, but he will then become the real People's Champion. Quick side note, promos are definitely not his strong suit, but the crowd did pop when he said he was going to win the title, so they clearly love him anyway. This brings out The Rock and the rest of the Nation of Domination at the top of the ramp. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but I am pretty certain that The Rock immediately debuts two of his signature catchphrases right at the start of this promo. Kenny, know your role and shut your mouth because the people's champ is ready to talk. You know, you little jabroni, the Rock is sick and tired of you coming out here whining and crying. Rock then says that if Shamrock can last just two minutes in the ring with one of the members of the nation, he will give him a shot at the Intercontinental title tonight. Rock then volunteers Delo ground for the job, and Delo is openly upset about this, but he heads to the ring anyway. Unfortunately, as Delo is protesting, Shamrock proceeds to turn things a wee bit racist. Just shut your monkey ass up. I don't care about this little monkey. Oh, here we go. Yikes. I haven't heard racist language like that from a wrestler since Hulk Hogan rolled off of Bubba the Love Sponge's wife. And sadly, the crowd popped huge when Shamrock said that. So good job encouraging that sort of behavior, Phoenix. Now, interestingly, on the original USA Network broadcast of Raw, they actually censored the word monkey on both occasions, but on the WWE Network, they leave it completely unedited. I tried to call Vince McMahon directly and tell him about this, but for some reason he wouldn't take my call. Strange. Anyway, we get a graphic in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen, counting down from two minutes, so the challenge is on. Dilo does manage to hold his own for about a minute and a half, but then Shamrock takes over and puts him in the ankle lock. With Dilo about to tap, The Rock ran into the ring with a chair and walloped Shamrock in the back to draw, what else? A disqualification. As a side note, if someone wants to go back to the start of this podcast and count the number of DQ or no contest finishes since we began, I would forever be in their debt. Just saying. After the match, I perked up because I realized what was about to happen next. If you want to make a top five of the most vicious chair shots in wrestling history, the one coming up next easily has to be on that list, if not number one. Shamrock slowly gets back up to his knees, and then he motions for the rock to hit him with a chair. Yes, you heard that correctly. He asked to be hit with a chair. The rock then cocks back and absolutely clobbers Shamrock with an unprotected chair shot right to the face. Not the top of the head, mind you, like we typically see with chair shots right in the fucking face, which Shamrock does not even attempt to block with his hands. Take a listen. Helping Dino out of here, but the Rock has that steel chair. He just used it as a weapon before. Oh, did you hear that? The Rock just cracked Shamrock right in the skull, right in the face. As I've said before, if you removed one of Ken Shamrock's testicles, he would still have four left. The man is a beast. However, looking back on this now and knowing what Shamrock said before the chair shot, I'm wondering if Rock was thinking, So, I'm a monkey, huh? right before he clocked him in the face. Maybe that explains that little extra oomph. But anyway, if you're a fan of brutal, horrific-looking spots in wrestling, I suppose you should go check this out. Once Rock hit him with the chair, a bunch of WWF officials ran out from backstage to check on Shamrock as the commentary team played up the angle that he had been knocked out cold. Farouk then took the chair away from Rock, saying that he had taken things too far, and apparently showing a bit of compassion. Rock and Farouk then got in a shouting match, and the Rock headed backstage. Shamrock got to his feet shortly thereafter, with a bloody cut now forming over his left eye, but he was still woozy and fell right back down to the ground. After a commercial break, we go backstage where medical technicians are tending to Shamrock. Kevin Kelly is standing next to them, and he says that the initial word from the ENTs is that Shamrock has suffered a concussion. Ah yes, the quaint old days of the attitude era, where you could actually use concussions and storylines. Before we all realized that they were slowly turning athletes' brains into pink piles of gelatinous oatmeal. I'm getting nostalgic just thinking about it. Up next, Sable gazongas her way to the ring. She grabs a mic and begins by saying, "Luna, you little bitch." She then challenges Luna to a fight later tonight, much to the delight of the silicone mesmerized crowd. She quickly finishes by saying, "And if you've got any guts, you'll be here so I can kick your ass." And then she leaves. Simple and to the point. Boobs and profanity, a guaranteed recipe for success in the Attitude Era. No sooner does she leave than a local basketball mascot, the Phoenix Gorilla, lowers himself from the ceiling on a rope. No Owen Hart jokes, please. And of course, this mascot makes a ton of sense because you can't walk 10 feet anywhere in the state of Arizona without running into a large ape. Amusingly, he actually does the Sin Cara entrance, running down the ramp, hopping on a trampoline, and flipping into the ring, although he ends up landing right on his ass, so let it be known that the Phoenix Gorilla actually botched something worse than Sin Cara did. He then sits down next to Jim Ross and Michael Cole and grabs the third headset, but he never actually says anything. I should also note that the crowd is absolutely eating this up, as though it were a bunch of ripe bananas, so much like Damien Sandow, the gorilla got himself over, which I guess means we'll never see him again. Next match is Double J Jeff Jarrett versus Tom Brandy. Before the match, Tennessee Lee, aka Foghorn Leghorn in human form, introduces Jarrett by saying he is a greater entertainer than Elvis Presley, and Jarrett then proceeds to ride an actual fucking horse to ringside. Not only is Jarrett wearing a light-up jacket with the letters JJ illuminated, but the horse also has his own light-up bridle as well. I'll admit, I found it pretty entertaining. The match only lasts about a minute and a half, and it ended when Jarrett was in the corner, and Brandy jumped at him and landed crotch first on the second turnbuckle. That's one of those wrestling spots where a guy never actually hits the intended move, and you can only wonder what it would look like if he ever actually did, kind of like when Ric Flair used to go to the top rope. Jarrett then dragged Brandy into the center of the ring, put him in the figure four, and scored the submission victory. In a hilarious moment, as Tony Chimmel announces Double J as the winner of the match, you can hear a disappointed person who is clearly not very happy with the result. Double J wins with wins a figure Double J! Fuck. Apparently, the Phoenix Gorilla is not a Jeff Jarrett fan. I should also note that much like Ken Shamrock's monkey soundbites from earlier, that guy yelling fuck is actually censored on the original Raw broadcast on the USA Network, but for some reason, the WWE Network leaves it gloriously intact. So there you go, folks. If you want to hear unedited racism and profanity, the WWE Network will be your haven for it then, now, and forever. But now for some sad news, folks. That segment we just discussed was the final Monday Night Raw match for Tom Brandy. Now, normally that would mean that I'd be queuing up the Wrestler Heaven clip, but in just a little bit there will be a final match for someone else as well, so we'll save it for later. Stay tuned for that cliffhanger, but I promise that we will all take a journey to Wrestler Heaven together. Backstage we see Ken Shamrock being wheeled out of the arena on a stretcher, as Kevin Kelly tells us he will have further updates on Shamrock's concussion when he gets them. However, he then gets interrupted by The Rock, who once again gets in his know your role and shut your mouth line, and also says that he laid the smackdown on Shamrock, so apparently tonight is the night when The Rock literally decided to debut every single one of his catchphrases. He says he now needs a new opponent at WrestleMania, and if Shamrock is still alive when the event rolls around, he can watch it from the comfort of his own home. Can you imagine today if Simon Gotch cut a promo bragging about how he might have murdered Enzo Amore with a concussion? I imagine it probably wouldn't go over well, but hey, much like what you say to justify the actions of your racist grandfather, it was a different time. Next up, we get a video montage of the career of Shawn Michaels, which takes up, and this is not an exaggeration, almost eight full minutes of TV time. Eight minutes. That time could have been spent to put on eight matches. I mean, it's the attitude Era; They're pretty short. And speaking of which, it's time for our next match, a three-on-two handicap match. NWA North American Tag Team Champions the Headbangers versus the Rock and Roll Express and Jim Cornette. We see a clip from this past weekend where the Headbangers beat the Express, and the stipulation was that Jim Cornette would have to fight one of the Headbangers after the match if they won. Fortunately for Cornette, one of the members of the Express hit Mosh with a chair and knocked him unconscious, so Cornette simply dropped an elbow on him and picked up the victory, and that leads us... To this match. Early on, we get one of my favorite idiotic wrestling spots the rowboat. If you've never seen this in action, I'll describe it for you. The headbangers slammed Robert Gibson and Ricky Morton to the canvas so that their legs were facing each other. The headbangers then stood to the side of them, grabbed their legs, and dropped to the ground, causing the express's legs to spread apart. While the headbangers were on the ground with them, they then proceeded to move backward and forward in a rowing motion, continuously splitting apart the express's legs. It looks so fucking stupid and yet it's classic old-school wrestling goofiness. If you want to see it in action, just type WWF Rowboat into Google, and funny enough, a video will come up which actually shows the Rock and Roll Express doing the move to the Heavenly Bodies at Survivor Series 1993. It is ridiculous, but also amazing. The match only lasts a little while longer after that, and Cornette never actually gets tagged in. Instead, the Headbangers hit their stage dive finish on Morton. Well, they don't really hit it because they fucked it up once again like they always do, but it was enough to get the three count. After the match, the Headbangers slingshot Cornette into the ring, seemingly ready to get some revenge on him. However, before they can do so, what's this? Bob Hawley and Bart Gunn show up dressed in matching blue ring attire with the letters M-E on their asses, and then they jump the headbangers from behind. They tie Thrasher in the ropes, and Cornet proceeds to slap him around. Bob Holly then goes to the second turnbuckle, and Bart Gunn places Mosh in his arms, and Holly then proceeds to hit a very nice second rope diving spinebuster. Gunn then hit Thrasher with a sidewalk slam and launched Holly off the top rope onto him. This is the same rocket launcher finishing move used by Enzo and Cass, as well as the legendary tag team The New Foundation. As a side note, it's kind of funny seeing Bob Holly using so many aerial moves when we know he basically becomes a pure brawler just a few years from now. Bart and Bob shake hands with Gibson and Morton, and Cornette then grabs a mic. He says people have been begging him to bring back the Midnight Express for the past eight years. I find that highly unlikely. So now he presents to us the NEW Midnight Express, Bombastic Bob, and Bodacious Bart, and with names like that, how could they not get over? However, Cornette expresses dismay over the fact that the Headbangers still have the NWA tag titles and keep putting their hands on him, and he says that's all the Rock and Roll Express's fault, so Bart and Bob then proceed to jump them. The new Midnight Express beat the crap out of the Rock and Roll Express, and I was kind of hoping that early 90s tag team the Orient Express would do a run-in to save them, but no such luck. Cornette stands tall with his new team as we go to break. The last time Bart Gunn was on WWF television was back on the January 12th episode of Shotgun Saturday Night, where he called himself Black Bart and defeated the Brooklyn Brawler. Clearly, he hasn't had much going on since he and Billy Gunn parted ways and broke up the smoking guns. As for Bob Hawley, you may remember he initially debuted with the gimmick of a NASCAR driver under the name Thurman Sparky Plug, which was quickly changed to Bob Spark Plug Hawley. Up to this point, he's basically spent the past few years as a glorified jobber, and he hadn't appeared on WWF television since the August 8th, 1997 episode of Raw, when he faced the since-departed Brian Pillman. For those scoring at home, that would be seven consecutive months without appearing on TV, or, as it's more commonly known, the Sandow treatment. But now, Bard and Bob are back, and they have the guidance of Jim Cornette, so I think it's obvious that big things are on the horizon. But now for the bad news. Ladies and gentlemen, the match I just described marks the final Monday Night Raw match for the Rock and Roll Express. Yes, that's right. In addition to Tom Brandy, we are also saying goodbye to Robert Gibson's lazy eye and Ricky Morton's ridiculous bleach blonde mullet. Truly, this is a sad day for the podcast, but as promised, this means we will be sending these three legendary grapplers to wrestler heaven. said i am the light of the world now he could as easily have said i am king shit of fuck mountain why would you fuck with me good night sweet princes you have served us well okay maybe not well but you were on raw so I, i guess that's something Up next, a pre-taped message from Jennifer Flowers. She tells us that Shawn Michaels can be her boy toy any day. If she and Steve Austin got together, it would be anything but stone cold, and she could even make The Undertaker rise from the dead. So there you have it, folks. Tune in to WrestleMania 14, because one of Bill Clinton's mistresses may end up having sex with one of your favorite wrestlers. When we come back to the arena, the Phoenix Gorilla is dancing around, and he has now ripped off his jacket to reveal a Gorilla 316 shirt underneath. He climbs up on the second turnbuckle, but then the lights go out. So it's time for your weekly dose of Kane and Paul Bear. much like everyone Kane has ever confronted. Instead of running away during Kane's lengthy entrance, the gorilla just stands in the ring. So he ends up taking a sloppy-looking choke slam and an impressive-looking jumping tombstone pile driver. Jim Ross tells us there is nothing funny about this, but I have to disagree. I mean, come on—it's—it's it's a grown man in a monkey suit. Let's be realistic. For you WWE historians, this marks the first instance of Kane attacking a sports mascot, but it will certainly not be the last. Stay tuned for that. Cue up the second hour credits and the obligatory scanning of the crowd once more, and it's time to start the war zone. Owen Hart heads to the ring with an air cast on his right foot because he legitimately sprained it last week in his match with Barry Windham. He joins JR and Lawler on commentary and tells us that he will still be competing at WrestleMania whether he's healthy or not. Our next match is Chainsaw Charlie vs. Billy Gunn, accompanied by Road Dogg and a graffiti dumpster. The match only lasts a few minutes, and Road Dogg is actually using his mic to talk throughout it. Terry Funk ends up hitting Billy with two consecutive DDTs, but then, as you might expect, Road Dogg runs into the ring and hits Funk with one of the tag titles to draw a disqualification. Yup, add another one to the never-ending total. Road Dogg swings the title at Funk again, but Funk ducks and hits him with a punch, causing Road Dogg to roll out of the ring. Funk then hits Billy with a DDT onto the tag title to incapacitate him. While this is going on, Cactus Jack shows up at the top of the stage, so Road Dog is now caught between Funk and Foley on the ramp. Funk knocks Road Dog down, and then, for some reason, he pulls out a harness and fastens Road Dog's feet into it. Foley then starts pulling a rope, which causes Road Dog to be hoisted upside down about six feet above the ramp. Foley grabs Mike and says he doesn't know how to get him down, so his ass better call somebody. That's certainly an interesting way to take revenge on someone, I suppose. I thought for sure they were going to start beating on Road Dog like a pinata, but no, they just kinda left him there. Well done, I guess? Next up, we go backstage with Luna Vachon and the artist formerly known as Gold Dust, who is not dressed in any costume whatsoever. JR asks her if she will accept Sable's challenge tonight. Luna says she will give Sable another makeover tonight whenever she decides to do so, and she takes a page out of Dan Aykroyd's book, because then she says this. Jane, you ignorant slut. Well, she doesn't call her Jane, but she does literally call Sable an ignorant slut, so there's that. That comment seemed a little bit too personal, but as I've said before, Luna's promos are goddamn awesome, so I'll let it slide. And now we head back to ringside where Kevin Kelly is set to interview Vince McMahon who enters to a very negative reaction from the Phoenix crowd. We flash back to last week where Stone Cold Steve Austin flipped off Vince and challenged him to a fight with Vince backing down from the confrontation. Vince tells Kevin that Austin's actions were unprofessional, but he can understand why he was upset since Mike Tyson had joined DX one week prior. Kevin asks Vince why he didn't hit Stone Cold when Austin asked him to do so, and Vince says he held back because he was, quote, saving the main event at WrestleMania because Austin wouldn't have been able to compete at the event with a broken jaw. As you might imagine, that causes the boo birds to intensify. He then asks Vince how it felt to be ordered out of his own ring by Austin, and Vince responds by saying he left because it would not have looked good if he had, quote, taken Austin down. Kevin then asks Vince one final important question, and Vince continuously dodges it. To his credit, ace reporter Kevin Kelly keeps pushing the issue and asking Vince to answer him, and then we get this infamous response when Vince is asked the question, do you want Steve Austin to be WWF champion? Mr. McMahon, you still have not answered the question, yes or no. all right it's not just a no it's a oh hell no <laughs> i tell you what austin must be beside himself right now in victoria texas because Vince McMahon said so. Thank you very much. For those of you scoring at home, I think this may count as the first appearance of the Mr. McMahon character since this was the first time Vince was openly acting as a heel. I know it's not the popular thing to do, but I actually have to give the creative team a lot of credit here for building this feud a few weeks before WrestleMania, because they obviously know that Shawn Michaels would not be sticking around for long due to his back injury, and they're going to need a new foil for Stone Cold once the event is over. Very wise. Now, as you heard Jim Ross say in that clip, Stone Cold is not actually in the arena tonight, but don't worry, fans. You can still enjoy an almost seven-minute-long video montage of his career and his road to WrestleMania. I wonder how the fans in Phoenix felt that night. With the biggest pay-per-view of the year less than two weeks away, the two competitors in the main event were not even booked for Raw. Interesting decision. We then go back to the arena where Triple H is walking down the ramp with a microphone. He heads over to the commentary table where Owen Hart is still seated, and he calls him a coward. He challenges Owen to a match right now, and Owen says he's only calling him out because he knows his leg is injured. Hunter shoves Owen off his chair, so Owen responds by going after him and rolling him into the ring, and the timekeeper actually rings the bell so it looks like we have a match. They brawl to the outside, and Hunter gets the better of Owen by ramming him face-first into the ring post. Triple H then heads back into the ring and distracts the ref, which enables China to sneak up on Owen with a metal baseball bat and whack him right on his cast. China rolls Owen back into the ring where Triple H puts some sort of leg lock on him, and referee Tim White then stops the match at his own discretion without Owen having ever given up. Your winner and the first ever two-time European champion, Triple H. He then grabs a microphone and says Owen won't show up at WrestleMania if he knows what's good for him, or he will send him back to Calgary in a wheelchair. Once again, I will give the creative team some credit for dragging this Owen-Hunter feud out for the span of three months but the way they've booked Owen to look so weak and stupid throughout it has been pretty infuriating to watch. I'll probably save that rant for the WrestleMania 14 episode of this podcast, but good lord, they have completely misused Owen since he returned to television after his brother got shafted during the Montreal Screwjob, and I'm thinking that probably isn't a coincidence. And now for your main event, which the announcers are repeatedly saying is not a match, but rather a quote, one-on-one confrontation, Sable, accompanied by Mark Marrow, versus Luna Vachon, accompanied by the artist formerly known as Goldust. For some reason before this confrontation can begin, a bunch of referees and WWF officials, including Commissioner Slaughter, head into the ring in order to keep them apart from each other as the Phoenix crowd chants, let them fight. Eventually, Sable manages to break away from the crowd and get some shots in on Luna, including tearing her shirt before Luna rolls out of the ring and heads to the locker room, and all the WWF referees and officials leave as well. However, in the ensuing chaos, Sable apparently injured her knee, so Mero attempts to help her up, but right when he does so, the lights go out yet again. Yes, having already taken out the Phoenix Gorilla, Kane and Paul Bearer are now setting their sights on another tiny-brained primate. Once Kane lifts his arms to set off the turnbuckle Pyro, Merrow immediately dives over the top rope and runs away, leaving the injured Sable all alone in the ring. Kane lifts his arm to signal that he is about to give her a choke slam, but instead, the lights go out once again. The Undertaker's gong goes off quite a few times, and eventually we see that Taker is standing on top of the Titan Tron. Also, Sable has vanished, but no one actually bothers to address that, so I guess we can assume she's fine. The Undertaker tells Kane what he is prepared to do to him at Wrestlemania, and apparently he had just watched Pulp Fiction right before he went out for this promo. I will strike down upon thee with anger and furious vengeance. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger. You will know my name as the Lord of Darkness. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Well, hey, if you're going to rip off a movie quote, you might as well make sure it's a good one. Anyway, The Undertaker then says that Cain will rest in peace, and we see that a casket is now positioned standing up on the stage. A bolt of lightning hits it, and the casket door opens, where we see a mannequin which resembles Cain. Or rather, it's supposed to resemble Kane, but actually it's pretty hilarious because it looks like a skinny Michael Jackson mannequin with a mask. The casket then catches on fire as Paul Bearer tries to cover Kane's eyes to prevent him from seeing it as we go off the air. Quite the eventful episode of Raw, so there's only one thing left for us to do, and that is to go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed C's back in the rec room era My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated the cast that's been thugging Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind They won't let me back in Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backwood Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak Now no. rockin' Stone Cold are my favorite maniacs The top rooster pluckin', chickens when they pluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap With WCW having Monday Night all to themselves, Nitro scored a very impressive 5.1 rating, which is the exact same rating they posted four weeks ago when they were unopposed due to Raw airing on a Saturday. But as for tonight, did airing on a Tuesday hurt Raw in the ratings? As Vince McMahon might say, Oh, hell no! In fact, Raw put up a 4.4 rating, which is the highest rating they have posted since the Monday Night Wars began in September of 1995. To which I say, why not move the fucking show to Tuesday Nights then? I mean, come on, that's a big-ass rating for them at the time. Although I suppose that would have been an admission that they lost to WCW, and you know Vince never would have gone for that. And speaking of the competition, here's what you could have been watching on Nitro. Goldberg defeated Lodi. Ultimo Dragon defeated Fit Finley. Scott Norton defeated Chris Adams. Jim Neidhart and the British Bulldog defeated Mike Enos and Wayne Bloom. Raven defeated Chris Benoit. Ernest the Cat Miller defeated Yuji Nagata. Scott Steiner defeated Ray Trailer, Booker T defeated Chavo Guerrero to retain his television championship. Diamond Dallas Page defeated Reese to retain the United States championship. Juventud Guerrero defeated Chris Jericho by disqualification, so Y2J retained his cruiserweight championship. And Lex Luger and Sting defeated Hollywood Hogan and Randy Savage, also by disqualification. Only 11 matches this week, huh? Clearly, Nitro has started slacking in that department. I kid, of course. This episode of Nitro actually aired the night after their uncensored 1998 pay-per-view, which drew a very respectable 415,000 buys. Yes, it certainly seemed like WCW would never lose their spot as the top wrestling company in the world, but I guess we shall see how that turns out. The Raw Synopsis As usual, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, the matches on Raw were so brief, they probably amounted to roughly ten total minutes of wrestling action on the entire show. When that is the case, the rest of the show's angles need to be incredibly entertaining in order to make it worth watching. And by God, they were really fucking entertaining. The Rock's chair shot to Shamrock, The Undertaker's casket barbecue, and the debut of the Mr. McMahon character? I'm calling those a win, folks. If you had told me going into tonight that I would be giving an enthusiastic thumbs-up to a show which didn't feature Stone Cold Steve Austin or Shawn Michaels, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but this was a very fun episode of Monday Night Raw. Hell, even when Jim Cornette debuted the new Midnight Express, I was entertained just watching Bob Holly flying all over the ring, as though he was a completely different wrestler than the man we've all come to know and hate. Not to mention the fact that we got a rare title change on free TV. A shitty one, but a title change nonetheless. All in all, I would definitely recommend you check out this episode because it was incredibly enjoyable. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepodcast. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I leave you now with a clip of Booker T reciting that same quote from Pulp Fiction in a commercial for Wrestlemania 21, a.k.a. the Wrestlemania where they went Hollywood because it took place in Los Angeles. See you next time. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee! Now can you dig that, sucker!